let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we pray now that in my weakness you would help me speak your word truthfully and clearly. And in your great mercy we would hear it as your word, the word of the living God. And we would know it's good work in our lives, helping us to trust Jesus for life and by its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, equipping us to do all the good works you have prepared for us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In life, uh, we are directed by what we hope for. We hope for a good job and so we pursue study. We hope to own a home, so we save. Some of us may even hope to play AFL and so follow a routine of strenuous exercise and training while others of us get to a certain age and just hope for health and so make changes to our diet and routines to incorporate exercise. There can be lots of things we hope for travel, a job, a career, a relationship, and sometimes our hopes we know can compete with each other. Pursuing a relationship may mean, for example, not accepting that interstate transfer. Wanting a home may mean foregoing that travel. And sometimes our hopes can fail. We get that career-ending injury. We lose our job and then our home the person we thought we would grow old with, leaves us. We know that. We know that we can hope and be disappointed in hope. And so we get anxious if someone, a friend or our child, seems to be pinning all their hopes on just one thing, entry into that particular course, getting that dream job or that special person liking them. At the heart of our passage today is a command to hope, a command to have all our hope in just one thing. Set your hope completely, fully, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the big idea. That's the command God wants each of us to grapple with in this passage this morning. Oh, it comes with backup. It's surrounded by verses that show us what a life of hope looks like and tells us why we can have confidence to do what is commanded, what might at first seem unwise, putting our hope, all our hope, in just one thing. So this morning, four questions. What does it mean to set your hope completely on the grace to be brought you by the rev- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, what's actually being commanded? That's the first question. Second question, what does that look like? How does that express itself concretely in our lives? Third question, why? Why do what our experience of a world full of change and chance suggests is unwise, risky? And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you might want to listen up here and think about whether the Christian God is the God you can put all your hope in who is worthy of putting all your hope in? Oh, and finally, a fourth question for believers. At the end, a time to reflect and ask yourselves, am I setting my hope fully on the grace brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ and does my life now 
show that. So what is Peter asking you to do when he commands you to set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? For a start, what are we hoping for? Well, it's the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, that the hope, the grace that comes to us with the Lord Jesus being revealed in glory at the last day. By this grace, Peter is speaking of the full experience of God's kindness to us in Christ, enjoyed without dilution or difficulty. This grace, this kindness on that day brings with it all that God has promised believers in Jesus. Uh, We've heard Peter writing about that already in verses 1 to 10. Oh, this grace brings with it the inheritance we've been promised, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, already prepared, kept securely for us in heaven. This grace brings with it salvation, rising with Christ to the new heaven and earth in bodies that will never die, where we can live with God without mourning or pain or tears, where we enjoy the praise and glory and honour of being included then in Jesus' people by faith. Now, being able to enjoy what Paul calls the immeasurable riches of God's grace in his kindness to us in Jesus for age upon age. That's the grace that's coming to us, is brought to us with the revelation of Jesus on the last day. And there is nothing that can compare with what this grace brings on this earth, where all is marred by sin and death, where our bodies are dying from the day we're born, where what we love we inevitably lose, where our selfishness and sin can defile our purest joys, where our best pleasures fade. Nothing like this grace, this hope we have in Jesus' return. Now, Peter's already talked of this grace, of this wonderful hope. So what is new here is the call to set our hope completely, fully, altogether on this grace coming to us at the revelation of Christ. You see, Peter really is telling us to put all our eggs in the one basket, to live our lives without a plan B, that we are to have no other hope to guide and direct us through life. Peter's calling us to set off on a journey to the fullness of what God has promised with no thought of turning back or turning aside. A bit like someone, you know, you might know them, fed up with the lockdowns and determined to move to Queensland, who sold everything and whatever they own, they've loaded in the car. Oh, and yes, they've told the boss what they think of their job before they go. No turning back, no turning aside. Or like Moses and the Israelites leaving Egypt for the promised land, where there's no, where there's to be no looking over the shoulder but what they've left behind, it's realise the hope or perish in the desert. And this is a hope, remember, which by definition can't be realised on this earth, for it's realised only when Jesus returns. So this hope directs our whole life throughout our lives, right to the end of our lives, for it can only be realised at the end. Jesus Peter is, in a sense, 
calling believers to embrace the ultimate in deferred gratification. You won't realise your hope until the end. So you'd need to be sure, wouldn't you? Sure of the destination to keep travelling throughout life guided by this hope. But not only can it be real, not be realised till the end, our commitment to that hope, as we know in this life, will be challenged. Set your hope completely, fully, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the big idea. What's commanded, believers in Jesus. And you might be thinking, I get it. All my hope is to be in what God has promised us. But is setting your hope fully on the grace to come something that just happens in our heads, an attitude? Or does it have more concrete expression? What does it look like for us to set our hope fully on the grace coming to us at the revelation of Jesus? Peter tells us that it means living different lives. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Living with our hope fully on what is to come means a life where we've said goodbye to the old ways of living and hello to living each day conscious that you can call the living holy God your Father and that you live in his presence in the spirit. And Peter speaks of this difference, of the change that comes into believers' lives in two ways. Firstly, as we see written here, it's having your life no longer directed by, shaped by, conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Now that's just a phrase, but Peter's actually nailed what directs most modern people there, feelings, desires. Thinking about the changes that are taking place in our understanding of sexuality and gender, Carl Truman observes that there's been a key change in the way Western people think of ourselves. Modern Westerners look within. They now prioritise feelings and intuitions for our sense of who we are and what's the purpose of our lives. If it feels right, we're told, do it. If it feels right, be it. We are directed by our desires at the core of our being, whether that desire is for power or pleasure or to be who we think we are. It's desire that leads us. And we're increasingly taught that to be led by our desire is a good thing. It's the authentic life, even if it leaves as it does our lives so often in chaos and disrupts our relationships. But these desires and the sway they hold over our lives, believers in Jesus now realise are expressions of our ignorance, our ignorance of the living God, the ignorance that comes from putting our trust in things, created things that are not God, whether that's our reason or our intuitions or power or other created God's idols. Whether whatever we're trusting, And however intelligent and qualified we might be, Peter says that when we're being led by our desires, we are ignorant of the true God. 
of his being, of his rule, of his goodness, of the fact that he is the source of meaning, not ourselves. But now we've become believers in Jesus, have become children of God through faith in Jesus. Believers are instead to be shaped by the truth of our God, the true and living God. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter quotes, as you heard, from Leviticus 19.2, where God said that if he were to live amongst his Old Testament people, they had to become a holy people because he is a holy God. Peter quotes Leviticus here because, like Israel, believers in Jesus live in the presence of our God through his spirit, even as we're journeying towards a fuller presence. And so we're to conform our lives to our God's reality, the reality of his holiness. God is holy. That is, God declares himself to be separate from all created things, separate from their finitude, their frailty, and their fallenness. Example, we are mortal, but God has life in himself. We're limited in space and time and power, but he is almighty, eternal, omnipresent. He is different, separate from us. Oh, we're ensnared in our sin, in our love of self, missing the mark in righteousness and justice, in doing what's right by others time and again. But our God is separate from all sin and imperfection, perfectly just and righteous, never failing to do what is just, right and good in all his dealings. Now, to be holy as he is holy is not a call for us to try and transcend the limits of our finite creaturely bodies, to think, for example, that we've got to become omnipresent or almighty. No, it's a call to separate ourselves from all our sin and to become like him in ways that finite creatures can be like him, that is, in our character and actions, in righteousness. Now, to see how good that is, to see how good it is to become holy as our God is holy, Think of God's love, his righteousness, his faithfulness, of how different they are and how good they are. You see, God loves even his enemies, sending them the rain and sun that sustains life on this planet. Oh, in his love, God is patient and merciful with people who have provoked him over and over again. In his love, he even gives his son for the world. To be like God in love is good. Oh, God always does what is right. There's no hypocrisy with him, no partiality. And in his righteousness, he is absolutely faithful. What he says, he does. He never lies. To be holy is to be like him in love and righteousness and faithfulness. You can see God's holiness, or hopefully you heard God's holiness, reflected in what he commanded his people in Leviticus 19. But let me just give you one example. There God said, don't oppress your neighbour or rob him. The wages to your hired worker must not remain with you until morning. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you are to fear your God, I am the Lord. You see, being holy as the Lord is holy means 
being honest and fair in business, not taking advantage of others' disabilities. Oh, you can see God's holiness in what the Lord Jesus commands his people in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's expressed in being faithful in our marriages, having absolute integrity in what we commit ourselves to, our yes, yes, our no, no. It means turning away from anger and pursuing reconciliation, being generous, loving even our enemies. To set our hope fully on the grace that is being brought to us when Christ appears is to live these holy lives in the world guided no longer by our desires but by who our God is. And so doing good to all in love, committed to righteousness, even if it brings us opposition, keeping our word, even if it costs us. You see, rather than make us so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use, setting our hope fully on the grace to come makes us helpful and useful to others. And there's a second way in which we are to be different. To set our hope fully on the grace to come is to be seen in living a life no longer held captive to the way of life we've received, it says, from our forefathers, from our culture. We have been redeemed, ransomed from that empty way of life. Now, Peter was speaking to people, say, from non-Christian backgrounds who passed on a culture, a culture that in whatever form we may have experienced it has its origins in Adam, our common ancestor's sin, has rebellion against our creator God at its heart. Where collectively we've decided for ourselves what is right and wrong and shaped our families and societies on our own judgments, not God's. And where we've devised religions that support us living the way we want to in rebellion against God. Now think what those who perhaps are not believers might inherit from our culture. What might that be? Well, perhaps materialism, thinking matters all there is and that there's no overall purpose to life. Hedonism, thinking that if that's the case, well, the goal of life is just getting as much pleasure for myself as I can while I can. Secularism, a belief that God is uninvolved and we're only accountable to ourselves individually and collectively. What we inherit is described as empty, futile, useless, powerless, lacking truth, empty and futile because it can never bring a life that pleases God because it always brings a life that can only end in death, eternal death and judgment. But now, says Peter, those who have set their hope fully on the grace coming to us when Christ appears live as children of God, those constantly calling on him as our Father, knowing he is the one who judges all impartially. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now, in reverence means to live in the fear of God. That's what the words actually are, in fear. Our whole way of life, the whole time we're on this earth journeying towards our heavenly country is to be lived in the fear of God. You see, Peter is again tapping into a great Old Testament theme, the fear of the Lord 
that Proverbs tells us is the beginning of wisdom. That fear is the trusting awe of God that recognises he's the almighty creator and active judge, the God who's established and maintains a moral order in the universe so that the wise life, the life of human flourishing, is found in conforming our lives to his commands. Now, this is a different life from the life that is lived in, well, folly, the life of those living heedless of God. Oh, it's a different life from the life of mockers who defy God. It's a different life from the life of the proud who think they are self-sufficient, masters of their own fate, creators of their own wealth. It's a different life, but it is the good life. As Proverbs says, happy is the man, woman, who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she, wisdom, is more profitable than silver and her revenue is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can equal her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left riches and honours. Her ways are pleasant and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her and those who hold on to her are happy. That is what the life of someone who has set their hope fully on the grace coming to them at the revelation of our Lord Jesus looks like. A holy life, a life lived in the fear of the living God. A good life that does good, but a different life. A a life no longer governed by our desires or the accepted norms of a society that's turned its back on God. And so that good life is actually a life that's now exposed to the curiosity and suspicion of others, a life that will sometimes encounter hostility and, yes, a life knowing the unease of the temporary resident, the unease of never belonging, of never being able to fully settle even while we seek the welfare of the societies we live in. Recognising that makes you ask again, doesn't it? Why? Why set our hope fully on the grace to come? Why do what seems so unwise, put all our eggs in the one basket, live with no plan B, live a life that will only be vindicated in its values and choices at the appearance of Jesus? A life that can leave us uneasy in the world exposes us to the hostility of those who do not welcome the criticism of their way of life as ignorant and empty. Why live that life? You'd need to be sure, wouldn't you, that grace was coming, wouldn't you? Oh, you'd need to be confident of Jesus appearing and of the goodness he brings to live this life. And so Peter surrounds this command with encouragements. He gives us three reasons why we can be confident of this hope, so confident that we can and should live without plan B. The first reason for this hope is the privilege of having this hope. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to glimpse, catch a glimpse of these things. Firstly, Peter says the grace given to us is the climax of God's revealed plan and purposes, something revealed to the prophets of old over hundreds of years and now declared to us through those who preach the gospel to us. What Peter says here brings home both the goodness of what we receive, the extraordinary privilege of knowing this grace, and also the certainty of what is declared in the gospel. You see, the goodness of this grace is emphasised by the prophets longing to know it for themselves as they spoke of both what would be achieved, the salvation coming to believers in the grace we receive in Jesus, and as they spoke of the way it will be achieved, of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And the prophets really wanted to know more. It says they searched diligently and carefully and those words describe not a quick glance in the sock drawer but turning the house upside down when you've lost the keys. They wanted to know. And the wonder at what God is doing, that longing to know, is not confined, we're told, to the prophets. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things, that God could bring such a great salvation in such a way engages even the angels, those witnesses to all God's dealings in creation. See, what we hear in the Gospels of the suffering of Christ and his exaltation as Saviour of the world moves even the angels to want to know more. They want to look more closely into the heart of the revelation of God's glory in the suffering of his son that we've received in the gospel. They want to see more of and praise more the depth of God's love and wisdom and might revealed in that salvation through the death of Jesus. To hear it in the gospels is a great privilege. But where told the curiosity of the prophets as to the time and circumstances wasn't satisfied, that marvellously they weren't serving themselves but believers in Christ in speaking their spirit-given word. Now think of that. Isaiah, Jeremiah in his suffering, Ezekiel in his grief, David, in their conflict and courage as they spoke the word of God, were serving us. Believers in Jesus, serving us by helping us through their testifying in advance to understand and recognise the greatness of the salvation we receive through the crucified and exalted Jesus. More, they were helping us to recognise it as the work of the living God, for only the God who rules history can speak, say, beforehand through Isaiah in the 8th century BC of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and then bring it to pass 800 years later. Oh, only God can move David by the Spirit to speak of Christ's resurrection in Psalm 16, Psalm 16, 200 years before Isaiah, and then bring it to pass a 1,000 years later. And these are just some of the hundreds of prophecies concerning Christ and his salvation. The prophets were serving us 
in showing the gospel to be the word of the same God, the God who can speak and bring what he says to pass, the living God who rules all things, who determines the end from the beginning. And in doing that, the fulfilment of prophecy and the work of Christ reinforces the certainty of the fulfilment of the promises made by Christ to us in the gospel. The gospel, we're told, verse 13, is brought to us by the same spirit, the spirit sent from heaven just as Jesus promised his apostles that he would empower their witness by sending the spirit upon them. Why should we have confidence in the grace coming to us at the revelation of Christ on the last day? Well, here's the first reason. That salvation, that grace is the fulfilment of God's wondrous, revealed beforehand plan in which he is revealed and to which he has tied his glory in his whole creation, spiritual and physical, heaven and earth. The promises that give us that hope are the word of God brought by the spirit of God, the word that never fails that has been demonstrated to be truthful, fulfilled across centuries. And the second reason we can be confident in, the, in this hope coming to us is seeing how committed, how committed God is to it, how committed he is to rescuing his people by seeing the price he has paid to effect that rescue. For you know, he writes, that you were redeemed, ransomed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Believers have been set free to live this life of hope, to travel in hope to God's appointed goal because we've been redeemed, ransomed by the blood, by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Peter likens Jesus in his death to the unblemished Passover lamb. It was by the blood of that lamb that the Israelites were spared the last plague and were freed from slavery in Egypt, to free to travel in hope to the land of promise. By Jesus' death, we have been ransomed from our slavery to our futile idolatry and rebellion against God. His death is the price paid to free us from the law's judgment on our sin, to free us from the penalty of sin, from the hold of death, so that we can travel in confident hope to the fulfilment of God's promises to us in Christ in the new heaven and earth. Now think of that. God gave his son to secure for us that inheritance, that grace coming to us when the Lord Jesus returns. Our God is committed to saving his people. In fact, verse 20 tells us that Christ's death is something that God has been determined to do from before creation. It's part of his plan. That Christ is the lamb foreknown before the foundation of the world. We can be confident in God's determination to fulfil his plan and save fully his people. And understanding the effectiveness of Jesus' death to save also increases our confidence. In his death, 
We are freed from judgment and death, from the hold of sin once and for all. You see, Jesus has offered himself in our place. He has, as Peter will say in chapter 2, borne our sins in his body on the tree. God has already executed his just judgment on us for our sin in his son. We have died with him. And now, as Jesus has died for us, there is no judgment outstanding against us. There is no further ransom that can or needs to be paid. We are freed. And in him, united with him by faith, we are now reckoned righteous. Those who will be vindicated in God's judgment and welcome in his presence. Christ's death has secured an eternal freedom from sin and its punishment we can be confident in the salvation, the hope achieved by the death of God's Son for us. And the third reason for a confident hope is that in trusting Jesus, believing in the gospel, our faith and hope are in God. For raising and exalting Jesus is the work of God, a work only God can do. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. In trusting Jesus, our hope is in God, the God who made all things, the God whose word is so great, who is so powerful that he can raise the dead to life. See, think for a moment of the power of God revealed in the gospel. You may have seen a corpse, cold, pallid, lifeless. Think of Jesus' corpse taken down from that cross, cold, pallid, lifeless, the dried blood on the wounds. And God has not only given that body deathless life, immortality, he has made the risen Jesus the source of life to all who believe. Now that's power, isn't it? And think of Jesus, shamed, humiliated, naked and mocked on the cross, held fast there. And God has given him glory. Nothing now restrains him. He is exalted to reign over all, to share his glory in heaven, God's glory in heaven, where all God's angels worship him. Our God is a God for whom nothing is too hard, who will never fail of his promise. And in believing the gospel, our faith and hope are in this all-powerful life-giving God. We can have confidence in the grace being brought to us in the revelation of Christ, confidence to set our hope wholly altogether on this grace because This is the promise of the God who has a plan to save, who knows what he is doing, knows from eternity the end that he will bring and who has made that goal known beforehand through his prophets and then brought it to pass in the ministry of Jesus, the God whose word has been proved true in the ministry of Jesus. We can have confidence. And we can have confidence because this is the promise of the God who loves us so much. 
He has given his son to secure that grace for us. Oh, the promise of the God who is so powerful, he can raise the dead. Setting your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ is the action, you see, of a mind made ready, prepared to act by the gospel. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, being sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, setting your hope on that grace is the sober-minded, clear-thinking response to the truth of the gospel, to the conviction that the promises made in the gospel are the promises of the living God. It's the reasonable response of those whose minds are not clouded, not intoxicated by their desires, not confused by the empty ways of their culture. It's being sober-minded. It's being clear thinkers that enables us to set our hope completely on the grace to be brought us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you're not yet a believer, think, where else will you find a hope so good of life without death or grief or the failure and hurt of sin? Where else will you find a hope so good and so certain The promise of a God who's shown in history he keeps his word, who's demonstrated his power to overcome death, who speaks his promise from a gracious love that even gives his son to free us from death, the death we deserved for our ignoring and disobeying God. Where else will you find a hope so good and so certain and a hope that this God will give you If you turn back to him and believe his gospel, that Christ has died for our sins, been buried and been raised again on the third day. Think about it. What holds you back from making this hope your own? What stops you from seeing clearly the goodness and certainty of this hope? Now's the day to call out to God or at least to find out more by saying rolling in Christianity Explored. Act on it. But if you're a believer, hear the word completely, fully, and turn away from lesser hopes. Hold the good things of this world like work or marriage or family or health more lightly. Enjoy them with thanks, but don't let them become the object of your longing. Let them always be things you can give up for something you know is incomparably better that grace, that salvation you desire more strongly and which is certain. Oh, believer, bear the trials of this world more lightly too. Those trials may grieve us, but whatever they cost us, wealth, health, those we love, even life itself, they cannot dispossess us of what the gospel teaches us to hope for. It's not in their power, for what we hope is kept by the power of God. What we hope for will be revealed at the coming of the risen, glorious Lord Jesus. Believers, see that God gives you this command. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ for your good. Obeying it will free you to live as the 
chosen sojourners, believers are called to be, people who know their home is the new heaven and earth and their only temporary residence here. Setting our hope fully on the grace to come will protect protect us from the seduction of the pleasures and cares of this world, from the seduction of money and power and popularity, the seduction that would turn us back to the empty ways we've left behind, turn us aside from journeying towards our goal. And setting our hope fully on the grace to come will also insulate us from the disappointments and losses we experience here, whether in our careers or in our relationships, disappointments and losses that can overwhelm us and turn our gaze from our Lord Jesus and finishing the race in his presence. So do what it says. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Examine your life and see if there's anything there that you so long for, desire, love, that you would be reluctant to give it up for obedience to Jesus. Look at your life. And if you see those things, repent, confess that love of other things to Jesus and leave it with him so you can be a person who is all in, who lives with no plan B, whose life will be a waste if Jesus does not return in glory because that's the kind of person who inherits that grace that will come to us when Jesus returns. And let that show in lives of holiness now, lived in the fear of the Lord. You see, that is always the sober-minded, clear-headed response to the gospel of God, to the word of God whose word has been proved true, to the love of God who has given his son to save us and to save us effectively, to the power of the God who has raised the crucified and exalted Jesus, crucified Jesus and exalted him to glory and who will reveal him at the last day as the Lord to whom every knee will bow. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll pray and then we'll have some more prayers. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray for that clear-minded conviction of the truth of the gospel and the assurance of the certainty of what you have promised us so that we would live this life as people with the one hope, the fulfilment of all you have promised us in Jesus, so that we would live this life now as your children, living lives in the fear of God, that wisdom that brings life, living holy lives, that holiness that does good to others. We pray, convict us of this truth and strengthen us in our hope, turn us away from lesser hopes and free us to run towards our goal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.